You um, didn't say that on air. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to the Bloomberg Benchmark Podcast. I'm Tori Stowell, a U.S. economics reporter in D.C. with Bloomberg News. And I am with my colleagues and co-hosts, Dan Moss, our executive editor, who's calling in from Brasilia today, and Aki Ito, our editor for Benchmark in San Francisco. Hello, everyone. Hey, guys. Hi, guys. Dan, what's the coolest thing that you've eaten since you've been there? (laughs) Without question, steak. This was a federal capital carved out of grassland. Uh, and designed by architect Oscar Niemeyer in the 50s and 60s. And really, if you just drive 10 minutes from our office or from the congressional building, you'll essentially find yourself surrounded by ranches. Wow, that's really cool. I didn't know that. Hopefully you've had a chance to listen to some of our previous podcasts. We've talked about things like whether you will get a raise this year and the economics of a mysterious generation of Americans who I'm told are also called snake people. Jim Morrison used to call himself the Lizard Man. I think this is something different. But just in case you're tuning in for the first time, we're a podcast determined to make the economy interesting and relevant to your everyday life. Not about numbers, about an economic narrative. Dan, it's been a really exciting week in the world economy. Uh, An exciting time to be you and responsible for global economics coverage, perhaps a little stressful too. What stood out to you? Well, it's exciting to be part of the team, Aki, that covers central banks, finance, ministries, and macroeconomic data right around the world. This week, we went to Norway, where interest rates were cut to a record low. That was a big surprise. We had an interest rate cut in Taiwan and in India, We got an interest rate cut. That was anticipated. The magnitude of the cut was not. Only one of about 50 economists surveyed by Bloomberg actually picked it. Wow. So it sounds like central banks around the world are pretty dovish right now. And you know that may include to some extent the Fed, which also took a pass on hiking interest rates in September. Yeah, it'll be interesting because, as we all know, the Fed is eventually going to raise interest rates, probably in the next few months. And there seems to be a real divergence between all these other central banks around the world and then the Fed, which is going to tighten really soon. Yeah, I mean, economic conditions are looking pretty rocky right now around the world. You know, commodity prices are down largely because people are worried about slower growth in China, which is the world's biggest consumer of commodities. And then you have the euro area where the inflation rate unexpectedly turned negative in September. And then Japan is basically flirting with another recession, right, Aki? Wow, that's really depressing. Yeah, not a good time to be in the stock market. But I guess here in the U.S., we've been getting some pretty upbeat uh, economic reports. That's right. We have one big thing going for us here in the U.S., and that is a strong consumer, thanks to pretty good job growth. Right, Dan? The job growth is here. And I was just going to pose a question to the group. Whatever happened to American declinism? It doesn't seem all that long ago the narrative was running that the BRICs, including Brazil, were ascendant and the West was in decline. Now, granted, some parts of the West aren't doing too well, such as the Eurozone, but you'd have to say right now, among the world's major economies, the U.S. is standing tall. 
We're definitely leading growth. And you've sort of got to wonder whether American consumers are really going to be able to pull it off all by themselves, especially when so many other things are going wrong. That's a great question. And, you know, it explains, at least in part, the propensity of other central banks to cut interest rates and sometimes cut them very aggressively. Speaking of central banks, my personal highlight was Fed Chair Janet Yellen's big speech last Thursday, which she devoted fully to the state of inflation. Uh, Janet Yellen doesn't speak very often, but when she does, we all drop everything else and parse every single word. Gosh, Tori, how long did you say it was? 50 minutes long on inflation. <laughs> Massive. Yeah, lots of words to parse there. So this week, we are going to be following in Janet Yellen's great footsteps and devoting our whole show to inflation, too. But it is not going to be 50 minutes. So I'll set the stage here a little bit. Most things in an economy typically get a little more expensive every year. That's Econ 101. Inflation measures that speed of consumer price increases. And it's really one of the most important gauges we have to track an economy's health. Uh, Tori, it's your favorite, right? Oh, yeah. Just love the inflation numbers. (laughs) Is it like choosing your favorite child? Exactly. I mean, cover like, I don't know, probably 25 to 30, maybe more economic indicators. Inflation is definitely a hot one. So right now, we actually don't have enough inflation in the U.S., Um, although that might sound like a great thing to everyday consumers like you and me. Economists are really worried. Tori, do you want to walk us through some numbers? Yeah, so we have two big metrics of inflation that we like to look at. One is called PCE, and the other is called CPI. And they both sound a little bit like venereal diseases, but we promise they are not. (laughs) Um, You didn't say that on air. (laughs) You will never be able to return to the great state of North Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, anyways... There's some differences between the two for reasons that are just too wonky to get into right now. But suffice it to say, both numbers illustrate the same worrying trend, which is that inflation is not going the way monetary policymakers would like it to. You know, the Fed says ideally inflation should be around 2%, which is the target that they set in 2012. And we actually have never seen 2% inflation since they set that target. Uh, PCE, which is the Fed's preferred number, came out on Monday and it showed that inflation rose just 0.3% from the year before. And the big thing holding it down lately has been plunging oil prices, but even after you strip those energy effects out, as well as food prices, which also move around a lot, core inflation is at 1.3%, so obviously below the target here. And the Fed has chalked up the weak inflation over the past few years to you know economic slack, cheap energy, as we said, weak price increases overseas, and a few other factors. And they say these things are transitory and will eventually go away, but the bottom line is that it's still too low, and it's been that way for years at this point. And Dan, that's been the case in a lot of other countries too, right? It's interesting, Aki and Tori, the way the paradigm has shifted. Back in the late 70s, the 80s, and really through the 90s, and I guess even if you push it, the start of the aughts, uh, the narrative was, we don't want inflation. Inflation's a bad thing. We can't let it get back to the way it was back in the bad old days. It's worth asking the question, Have central banks become too successful? Is inflation too low? Or has something fundamentally changed about the nature of the global economy? 
pretty much everywhere among the major economies, inflation is either non-existent or it's considered too low. The Eurozone is a great example of that. Uh, Japan, where they might just about have kicked that deflation habit, but they certainly don't have inflation that is sustainable at the rate at which they want. We have an awesome economic surveys team here at Bloomberg, and they've actually asked economists what they think global inflation will look like for the year. And according to that, economists are looking for a 3% rate of global inflation, which would actually mark the slowest pace since 2009, which, as we know, was right there around or in the aftermath of the global economic and financial crisis. That is an average, right? Right. That is not like every country has 3%. Right, exactly. Well, to get to the bottom of this, we have Bloomberg's own in-house economist with us, Carl Ricadana. He is in New York with our producer, Magnus, in studio. Hey, Carl. Hi there. Carl, I think some people will hear this and think, gosh, if my rent and my morning coffee and my beautiful carbon fiber frame bikes aren't getting as expensive as we thought they would, or if they're even getting cheaper, that's a pretty amazing thing. We all like it when things stay cheap. So why are they wrong to be happy about these ultra-slow price increases? Well, the issue is that uh, their uh, mortgages and uh, auto loans are uh, also uh, not uh, being inflated away. So uh, from a buyer's perspective, it seems like a good idea uh, that consumer prices are falling. But uh, often as uh, prices fall or or run at a very slow level, uh, that means that uh, wages uh, also remain at a low level. And that's certainly been a hallmark of this economic cycle is the stagnant uh, pace of wage inflation, even as we get closer and closer to uh, estimates of uh, full employment or the neutral rate of unemployment in the economy, which is probably somewhere around 5%. We're getting closer and closer to that number, and the wage pressures simply aren't showing up. Now, that's from the buyer's perspective, uh, but also uh, from the borrower's perspective, as I highlighted, it's a big benefit if you imagine a, a 30-year mortgage, uh, and every year the inflation rate is uh, 2 or 3%. Uh, that's significantly uh, reducing the payment terms of that mortgage over the life of the loan. Uh, same thing for an auto loan, although that's over a shorter period of time, or uh, also for uh, student loans. And it's even worse when you have outright deflation, right, when prices are actually declining. Especially, uh, th- that's the uh, the worst case, because now you have a situation where debt levels are not becoming more manageable, but they're becoming uh, even less manageable, because deflation often feeds into uh, uh, wage deflation as well. Uh, and then that means we have unsustainable debt levels in the economy, at the consumer level, uh, and also uh, elsewhere in the economy as well. Yeah, I think Chair Yellen actually used a similar example in her speech last week when she talked about, you know, if a a couple buys a house um, and they expect home prices to keep rising and you have this phenomenon where deflation feeds into home prices and the home prices fall and their wages are also falling, all of a sudden their debt burden has gotten a lot bigger and a lot harder to manage. The debt burden increases, uh, and also uh, buying intentions are impacted. So, And this certainly was a phenomenon we saw in the economy over the last uh, five to ten years. If you know prices are are falling, you're going to hold off on that purchase. Uh, So in the housing market, we saw lots of fence-sitters watching the market decline, and they were waiting until there was evidence of stability to jump in. Now, if everyone in the economy starts sitting on the sidelines waiting uh, to pull the trigger on big-ticket purchases like 
housing, like autos, like other categories, then that means there's a real slowdown in consumer spending, which, as we know, consumer spending is a significant share of the economy, about 70%. The labor market has been strengthening for the better part of five years, and the unemployment rate, historically speaking, is very low. People keep waiting for that to translate into a wages surge, or at least some sort of discernible increase. It's not happening. What gives? Well, inflation is a lagging indicator, and wage inflation is also a lagging economic indicator. So there's a lot of slack in the labor force due to the dislocation uh, of the labor market that occurred during the economic crisis, and also due to globalization, there's now much more competition for wages uh, across the globe, whereas before, uh, you know, the U.S. had a, a relatively insulated economy. So we are moving in the direction. The, the good news is that uh, the raise is coming. Um, the bad news is it, it's coming slower than uh, in past economic cycles. So as we move through full employment, there will be increasing uh, degrees of uh, labor shortages, and so employers will have to pay higher wages. But uh, we're just not quite there yet. We need the economy growing. Uh, at a trend-like pace or better. That means 2% or or higher. And we need the unemployment rate to break through 5%. When that happens, then I think we will start to see the wage pressures. So, Carl, I grew up in Japan, which has been mired in chronic deflation for the better part of the last two decades. What precipitated it was the real estate boom that peaked in the late 1980s and deflated over the course of the early to mid-1990s. In the U.S., we had a similar real estate boom and bust that led to the 2008 financial crisis, as we all know. You know, it sounds like you're pretty optimistic that we're going to see 2% inflation in the fairly near future, but are we permanently heading into a future with slower inflation? What are your thoughts on that? It depends on your uh, definition of the very near future. I don't think we'll see it by year end. I don't think we'll see it next year. But in the grand scheme of things, I think it's possible uh, in uh, 2017 or 2018 uh, to return back towards a, uh, a trend-like uh, inflation rate. So we'll get there as long as the economy continues to grow. We don't stumble into a recession. Uh, and also, uh, as long as policymakers don't make a mistake. And they could make a mistake akin to the Japanese mistake, uh, which was not having policy loose enough for long enough. So the Japanese central bank was too slow to respond uh, to the negative shock to their economy that transpired in the uh, late 1980s, early 1990s. You know, a lot of economists were saying you have to do more, and the Japanese central bank was slow to react, and this is the consequence. Right. So the other week, the Fed had a huge interest rate meeting, and they decided not to raise interest rates, although we thought they might. Um, By the way, our magic eight ball in our episode the other week correctly predicted this. And, and, you know, one of the reasons why Janet Yellen and her colleagues decided not to move was to really make sure that they are entirely sure inflation is going to come back to 2% fairly soon. Right. It boils down to risk management. And the Fed's looking at the situation saying, What if we go a little bit too late? What if we hold off in September, but September was really the time to go? Mind you, as we look at the market reaction since that meeting, I would argue the economy certainly was not ready uh, for higher interest rates. As we see equity markets falling, commodities continuing to fall, this is still a very fragile economy. Nonetheless, the Fed is uh, looking at the risk assessment, and they're saying, well, if we're a little too late to the game, what options do we have? And they have 
plenty of options. They can raise rates. They can raise rates faster. They can telegraph to the market that they're going to be more aggressive. Uh, they also have an inflated balance sheet uh, with uh, treasuries, mortgages, and agency securities that they could start to unwind. So there's a, an entire arsenal uh, to combat an economy that's overheating uh, and inflation pressures that are uh, building too much. But that has hardly been the problem of, of the U.S. economy or of any major economy uh, over the last uh, five to uh, ten years. Instead, the Fed's looking at the other side of the risk spectrum, and they're saying, what if things get weaker? What if we, ma- what if we make a policy mistake and we go too soon and we have to backtrack? What tools are at our disposal? Uh, and those tools are not pleasant ones because they're tools that have not been broadly tested. So they could resort to negative interest rate policy, which was tested in uh, a relatively small economy like Sweden and seems to be helping, but we haven't tried it among a major financial player uh, like the U.S. So there, you know, it's not clear uh, what the potential negative fallout uh, could be. Uh, and also, there's the uh, the uh, tool that the relatively new tool uh, of this cycle, which is quantitative easing, uh, which I would argue the first three rounds of Fed quantitative easing have been effective, uh, but we have no guarantee that future rounds will be as effective as previous rounds. Well, it's all very worrying stuff, Um, but I guess that's it for us today. Maybe the next time you're in a store, you'll be even a little glad that uh, you see some price increases here and there. Thanks again for listening to Bloomberg Benchmark. We will be back next week. You can find us on Bloomberg.com and on iTunes. And while you're there, please, please, please take a moment to rate and review our show. That really, really helps others discover our podcast. And tell us what you thought of the show. You can reach us and follow us on Twitter at, at DanielMossDC, at Tori Stilwell, and at Aki Ito 7 All right. See you guys next time.